0: I think hybrid is kind of just an in-between step for a lot of people that are still a little scared as to whether or not they should really go completely remote or not.
1: Every single company competes in attracting and retaining the best talent in the world. The Better Monday podcast helps leaders, entrepreneurs, and other growth-minded people get up to full speed with a 360-degree view of happiness, work-life balance, and organizational responsibility. Our mission is to interview top professionals all around the world so that you will have a smoother path on your journey to a happier work-life. Your host is Mila Heikkilä, and the podcast is sponsored by Sofocus. Hello there! I wish your week has started with lots of happiness and joy because, well, that's what life should be, right? Full of sunshine and uh, happy experiences. Well, (laughs) okay, not every day can be a happy one, but I sincerely hope everyone is able to enjoy their lives and all its possibilities. On the fourth episode of our third season, I got an opportunity to interview Liam Martin, A remote work advocate as he calls himself. Liam is a co-founder of several remote first companies and he is also a co-organizer of a conference called Running Remote. Liam's companies have no physical offices and his team members come from 35 different countries. Liam has been running remote-first companies for over a decade, so it's justified to say that he certainly knows what he is talking about. Me and Liam had an inspiring and long conversation about pros and cons of different working models. We talked about the challenges people face in a hybrid organization, and we also discussed about the potential problems remote-first organizations face. One very clear challenge seems to be the taxation when traveling and working simultaneously. This has certainly bothered my head lately, because I'm dying to spend some time in somewhere warm and sunny now that the Finnish weather is like living in a dark and closed box. Since our conversation lasted for an hour, I decided to divide this episode into two. In this first part, we'll discover the future of work, asynchronous communication, and differences between remote work and hybrid work. The second part will continue with pros and cons of remote work, and Liam also shares his ideas of how a company could increase their employees' happiness at work. I highly suggest you to listen to both episodes, since this was clearly one of the best conversations I've ever had in the whole history of the Better Monday podcast. Hello, Liam, and welcome to Better Monday podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to share with you the deep inner workings of my Monday.
1: And I'm very excited to have you as our guest today. Well, today is actually Thursday, I think. Yeah, Thursday it is. Uh, But I'm still going to ask you a question that is, what makes a better Monday for you?
0: Well, other than the coffee that I'm currently drinking, which um, I, little known fact, if you add cardamom to coffee, it's amazing. I've been doing that the last couple months. And it's been a game changer for me. Uh, but other than the coffee, for me, what counterintuitively makes my Monday as successful as humanly possible or makes it, quote unquote, better for me is knowing exactly what I'm going to do for the rest of the week. Having all of those pieces in place, having that discipline to be able to say, what is my weekly target What things do I need to get done throughout that week? Who do I need to talk to? How do I need to interact with those people to be able to just know what's coming down the pipe? And that's usually something that people don't necessarily think about. I think a lot of people think the opposite. They have a perspective of almost escapism, saying, oh, I don't want to necessarily get into my Monday. But for me, Monday is probably the single day that predicts the success of the rest of my week.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, And are you doing some to do to do lists for yourself or are you just like uh, checking your calendar and uh, trying to figure out what's, what's going to happen through that or
0: thing in the morning? And actually my Monday starts on Friday afternoon. um, I have a task on Friday afternoon at 5 PM in my calendar. So a lot of my task list is inside of my calendar and I have at the very end of my day, in box zero, and then in all caps, do this, Liam, stop effing around, uh, which is everything must stop, and I must just inbox zero for Friday afternoon. And then off of that, I usually write down what I did this week. Did it connect to my Monday target? Did I hit my goal or not hit my goal? I kind of almost have like weekly rocks. And then I identify what I'm going to do for next week in terms of my rocks, because I should have all of the information available to me in order to actually know what I should be doing throughout that week. And the vast majority of the time, it connects to other people inside of the company and what they need to do or what they need to deliver to me in order for me to be able to hit my targets. And uh, then I just reinforce that list on Monday. So it's usually me sitting down with a lot of my direct reports, figuring out, What are we going to do? What are the issues? What are the blockers that are stopping us from actually hitting that particular rock and then simply just having them execute on it? Hmm.
1: That's actually a very good tip for (laughs) myself as well. Uh, Because I'm doing to-do lists for myself on Sunday evenings, actually. Uh, But I've kind of... uh, forgot to do the reflection on Fridays or, or on Sundays. Hmm. Like uh, that's, that's definitely one important thing to do when you're um, planning your, your next week and then also reviewing how the week has gone itself. Yeah. If
0: you're working on Saturdays and Sundays, then I would definitely suggest that you do it on a Sunday. I just do it on a Friday for me, because that's my last work day. So it's fresh in my mind. And I try to get that information on my digital piece of paper as quickly as humanly possible. Also too, inboxing to zero on Friday afternoon really just kind of finishes off the week for me. So if there's any open ideas or open problems that I need to be able to address, I do it at that point. And uh, it is by far the most difficult part of my week because there's so many other things that are pulling on me that, uh, you know, it's 5.30, 6 o'clock on a Friday, I want to not do that. Um, I have a, a new baby daughter. She's 15 months old. Uh, you know, I want to I go to a restaurant or I want to sit down and watch Netflix or something like that, but it's really important to be able to get that last half hour in to kind of just finish off the week and say, it's finished. Let's spend 10 minutes on did I hit my goals and 10 minutes on what are my goals for next week?
1: Mm-hmm. I can totally relate to that. Uh, hey, Liam, could you introduce yourself to our listeners uh, who might not know you yet?
0: Sure, forgot about that. Uh, so, <laughs> my name is Liam Martin. I am co founder of a couple companies, TimeDoctor.com and Staff.com, which are both time tracking tools for remote teams. And I also am the co-organizer of a conference called Running Remote, which is the largest conference on building and scaling remote teams. We've been running that for about four years. And we run what a lot of people two years ago thought was quite rare, but now a lot of the world has kind of come to realize it's a better way to work. We run a remote first organization. So we have no physical offices and we have team members in 43 different countries all over the world. Uh, And uh, I've been doing that for 11 years.
1: 11. That's a long time.
0: It is a long time. (laughs) I realized that actually last year, which was, have I been working on this for 10 years? And then I looked at it and I said, wow, I have. And uh, I have a, well, to talk about another list, I have big lists of goals for myself that I want to achieve in a, Like almost kind of like on a decade's basis. And I had this old list when I started the company, which was I want to run an eight figure technology company. I want the freedom to be able to travel six months out of the year. And I want a partner who can travel with me six months out of the year. So those were the three big goals that I had in my life. And I keep that, I kept that that card that I wrote those goals on in my wallet. So it's just a Pavlovian trigger to be able to look at that card from time to time. But then I realized last year, I've accomplished all of those goals. Um, That's amazing. So then I wrote new goals uh, down, which Mm -hmm. are uh, just for me uh, until I've actually achieved them because they're much bigger than the ones that I had on that card in the first place. But uh, it's definitely been... A huge journey for me and a lot of ups and downs over that 10 years there's probably about eight or nine times in which those goals could have completely collapsed but i did come out the other end and i do think that writing down those types of goals for your life is incredibly useful and in carrying it with you somewhere because i think there is the subtle reminder almost the subconscious reminder that hey this is actually what i want to do with my life and uh and if you don't have that on you somewhere you forget those goals
1: Mm -hmm. totally totally agree uh by the way have you ever heard about uh, nlp Mm -hmm. neuro linguistic uh, programming i think
0: yes definitely
1: yeah yeah because uh in neuro linguistic programming you kind of uh, set yourself some targets and uh uh, in different kind of ways. And one of the ways is just to write the goals down uh, on a paper. Paper, It kind of helps you to, it helps your subconscious to start working for those goals. So so I'm also using that and it, it really works.
0: Hmm. I have a friend of mine who's big into NLP and he has a kinesthetic trigger, which is he takes his, his index finger and in his thumb and he brushes his eyebrows. And when he does that, it is communicating a different type of persona for him, which is a public speaker persona. He's a very oh. introverted individual, but then he's been able to, through neurolinguistic programming, basically trick his mind into saying, well, I'm actually gonna be an incre- incredibly charismatic and outgoing person when I go out on stage, or I speak in front of a large group of people. And he's been able to build that trigger where he really is a different person. It's it's pretty amazing the amount of work that he's been able to do where he just takes his, he just brushes his eyebrows and all of a sudden he turns into this different person. So I definitely believe wow.
1: in that. Yeah, our mind is a powerful tool if we just learn how to use it, I guess. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, since you've been uh, running a remote company or remote companies for over, over uh, 12 years now, um, you've kind of been uh, ahead of your time. Uh, but now if we look into the future, uh, what does the future in your opinion look like? Or, or the future of work, let's put it that way.
0: Sure. Well, I don't know if you've heard in the news just recently the, the term, the Great Resignation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have.
0: So in the last couple months, uh, more specifically in July, more people quit their jobs in July than in the entire history of the United States. It's not just a small problem. It's actually a really, really big problem. And when you pull those people, and this is something that's not really getting covered that well in the news, of them say the reason why they are quitting their jobs is because their employer wants them to go back to the office and they want to stay remote. So in March of 2020, everyone on planet Earth got a taste of remote work. I'm going to use US numbers. In the United States, 4% of the US workforce worked remotely pre pandemic. The month after, Um, the lockdown, 44% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. And post-pandemic, we're projected to be about 35% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. So effectively an exponential jump um, between then and now. And everyone has now gotten this taste of remote work. So I think it's going to be very, very difficult to be able to put the genie back inside the bottle You've got two forces that are pushing up against each other. You've got employees who really, really want to keep remote work because it gives them more freedom and flexibility throughout their work day. And they're able to have better relationships with their families and their friends. And then you've got employers that are actually now coming to the conclusion, well, we've been running this remote work thing for the past two years. It looks like our businesses haven't fallen apart. But while that's been happening, we've still kept these very expensive office leases going, which is the single largest cost above labor. So for any company, the second largest cost on someone's PL is the physical space that they're inside of. And we're seeing a lot of companies now actually drop those leases. And we're going to see a lot more of that happen over the next year or two. A lot of these leases are three to five year leases. So we're just starting to see those leases kind of um, drop off. Uh, There's a city here in Canada that saw a 33% drop in um, corporate leases inside of their city center. So we're talking about a complete transformation of the way that work is going to work. And the vast majority of people, I believe in the future, are actually going to be working remotely, not because... It gives more freedom to the individual worker. It's because it is quite literally a new way to work that is far superior to what we like to call the on-premise model, the people that go into a particular space. Uh, Just yesterday, and I know probably, I don't know when this podcast is going to be coming out, but um, mid-October, GitLab just went public. Uh, which is a perfect example of a very successful remote first organization. And they went public at a multi-billion dollar valuation um, and they have no physical office. So I believe that probably within the next 10 years, about half in the S and P 500, the 500 most powerful companies in the United States, and then probably by extension in the world will be working remotely. I think it's a business model that's just fundamental to um extracting more value from corporations.
1: And I think companies are just now started to understand that if you run a remote, like let's say 100% remote company, it doesn't actually mean that uh, uh, in a way that you would have to do things totally differently. It's just a different way of organizing the work, I guess. Sure.
0: Well, so I think there's a there is a big difference between working remotely and being a remote first organization. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of people now, we like to call them pandemic panickers, the people that just panicked and said, okay, we need to take our entire team remote. But just recreating the office in a remote environment does not necessarily produce a remote first Management philosophy. So, Mm -hmm. this really kind of boils down to one singular factor that I've been focused on quite literally for the last five years as I've been studying successful remote first companies, which is asynchronous management philosophy. So, right now, what we're currently doing is we're communicating synchronously. You can ask me a question, I can ask you a question, and we have immediate response, but we both must be present to actually consume the information that's being distributed. But the person that's listening to this podcast right now is consuming that information asynchronously. So they can choose when they want to consume that content and then they can respond not necessarily immediately, but there's ways of getting in contact with me or you, you know, they can they can reach out to us on social media, they can email us to be able to get answers to the questions that they're looking for. The vast majority of successful remote companies have the latter model instead of the former. Almost all remote companies that I've interacted with, the vast majority of their communication is asynchronous. So they do not meet on Zoom. Everyone's now meeting on Zoom. You know, it's the big thing. You're spending five to six hours a week on there. Uh, I have spoken to, well, as an example, the founders of GitLab, spend less than 5% of their workday communicating synchronously. Now that seems a little bit shocking, particularly to the CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation, but they're recognizing if everyone knows what they need to do inside of their job and the measurement is in place to be able to measure against that success, why do I need to actually jump on with my manager to be able to do that process synchronously? It's an old school model based off of the presumption that collaboration and interaction synchronously is by definition always better. And remote companies have discovered that actually, to be honest with you, collaboration in a lot of cases is actually hindering your company's success. You need to do less collaboration and you need to focus more on deep work inside of the organization.
1: Mm, all right. That's new information for me. Uh but I can totally relate relate to the fact that uh, if you're sitting in in teams or Zoom meetings, let's say six hours in a row, you're gonna be exhausted after that. It's really, really consuming to just stare stare at the screen and uh try to communicate through through that.
0: So well it's also built off of an old school model which was everyone is going to get in their cars or get on the Metro or get on a bus. And they're going to commute in an hour and a half to one particular location. And then once you're all at that particular location, there's a sunk cost fallacy, which is we've all spent the labor time to get here. So now let's collaborate as much as humanly possible. Let's get as much collaboration in as humanly possible. But when you're remote commuting is as quick as turning on a zoom call it's instantaneous. So remote first companies have an a la carte model on synchronous collaboration. They're realizing, well, this meeting actually doesn't need to take an hour and a half. It can take five minutes. We could actually deal with all of these issues asynchronously. We could work it out on email and not everyone has to be in the same place at the same time. I am blown away at how many people cannot requisition a paperclip inside of a company, but they could put 10 executives that are all making six figures a year in a room for three hours to discuss whether or not the envelope should be manila or, or pale blue, as an example. This is a massive waste of time, and more importantly, a massive waste of resources. And remote-first companies have been able to completely bypass that with asynchronous management.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you've built your career around remote work, then how does remote work differ from hybrid work?
0: So I am very interested in seeing where hybrid work goes. To a degree, I actually think it might be the worst of both worlds. So when you have an on-premise model, there's there's on-premise work, which is everyone comes to an office every single day. There's hybrid work, which is you're required to come into the office, let's say one day a week. And then there is completely remote work, which is you work almost entirely remotely. Maybe you go for a team retreat once a year, as an example, or maybe even quarterly. And the hybrid model requires the lack of vision with regards to talent acquisition. One of the biggest advantages inside of remote teams is I can hire anyone on planet Earth. We have team members in 43 different countries all over the world, completely distributed. We do not find the best computer programmer in Montreal, Canada. We find the best computer programmer at the price point that we've set. And that completely changes the way that we acquire talent. If you're in a hybrid model, you're still restricted to that same problem, which is, well, if everyone actually has to come into the office once a week, you still have that issue. You still have to own the office. Right? You still have to actually own that physical space. Maybe you can reduce the cost of your footprint by a small degree, but generally, based off of what I'm seeing, the vast majority of those companies are keeping their full footprint. And then, uh, So you can't hire really great talent anywhere on planet Earth. You have to keep your footprint in place. The only real advantage, to be honest with you, is for the employee who actually gets to work four days from home uh, whenever they want. But even then, the... And, and again, if no one knows this terminology, I'll explain it. The digital nomad uh, movement inside of the work world is exploding. Uh, and digital nomads are people that work, can work from their computer and they travel the world and they, do, they just do work from their computer. So because they are not necessarily located in San Francisco, but they might work for a San Francisco employer, but they may be in Medellin or they may be in Barcelona or Toronto or Montreal or wherever. So the hybrid model also restricts those individuals as well. So that employee must check in once a week as an example. And the reason why the vast majority of large corporate companies are doing this is not because they don't necessarily want to be able to go after that talent. It's because uh, they are legally required to be able to prove from a tax perspective where those employers are or where those employees are working. So if an employee is working in Barcelona, as an example, but they're a tax resident of California in the United States, that company that is in California in the United States is legally liable for tax implications in Spain if the Spanish government goes after it. So this is a real kind of problematic system that I think hybrid, there's a lot of legal barriers that we have to overcome to be able to truly scale this. But uh, there are a lot of companies, remote.com is a fantastic one that will allow you to be able to hire anyone on planet Earth, wherever you want. And they deal with all of the legal implications of that. And another one is called the Let's Deal or Globalization Partners. These guys all do this work. Uh, but once we have that framework in place, then I think the vast majority of these hybrid agreements will really disappear because we are seeing companies like GitLab That are saying we pay exactly the same amount of money in a lot of cases they pay more for salaries but their overall costs are about 33 percent cheaper than anyone with an on-premise or hybrid model because they don't have to actually pay for that physical space so they're a more efficient model they're a more efficient model for generating profit inside of a corporation and i think it's just simply an inevitability i think hybrid is kind of just an in-between step for a lot of people that are still a little scared as to whether or not they should really go completely remote or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting viewpoint. Because uh, uh, I'm, of course, like I'm, I'm co- comparing this situation to Suffolk's, uh my, my employer, and uh, we call ourselves as a hybrid company because we allow our people to work 100% remotely if they want to. So they don't have to check into the office or check in with their managers. Well, we don't have managers, so that's another thing. But overall, like uh, they can choose where they work from. But that, that definitely is a problem. Like If our people want to travel, let's say, to Thailand and work from there, uh, let's say, a couple of months in a year, the taxation uh, creates new problems to do that. And that's, that's an issue for, for us as a hybrid company.
0: So generally um, before the entire world switched over to remote, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on podcasts. So please consult your attorney before taking any of the actions that I'm about to propose. But historically it was a don't ask, don't tell policy. So you would say, I'm going to be a, I'm a tax resident of California in the United States. And your employer would say, great, I'm going to pay. We're going to pay state and federal taxes through California. And let's say you're in Thailand. Just don't tell your employer and your employer doesn't want to know because there's a component of deniability inside of that. Uh, that is going to change very, very quickly. Because we've seen, just from a digital nomad perspective, there were about 5 million digital nomads pre-pandemic. There are now about 50 million. It's huge Mm. in terms of the expansion. And once the vaccine is distributed evenly across the planet, which I think we should effectively be done within about another year, we're probably going to see that number double or triple again. Uh, So we're going to have a really big problem on our hands. I have... I know people that work for technology companies that you probably use every single day that are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. They were in San Francisco paying $11,000 a month for a two-bedroom apartment, and they now live in Bali with a a maid and a six-bedroom villa for $3,000 a month and they're still, quote unquote, working in California. Um, This is a big legal issue that we actually need to solve before we can scale remote work to the next level, which is something that I'm very passionate about, is looking at the pragmatics of remote work. We all really like it, but how do we actually turn it into something that billions of people can, can use? This issue of taxation is probably one of the biggest barriers towards the overall success of that movement becoming something that Uh, everyone on planet earth can have access to. And it's not just Western workers going to the developing world. It's also employees in the developing world, being able to get access to the jobs that historically were denied to them because maybe they're a fantastic computer engineer, but they can't actually get to San Francisco to be able to get those jobs. That's now changed. So there's going to be a lot more competition coming from the developing world back to those jobs, and the competition is going to get a lot more fierce. Uh, It already is now. We've seen this across our network. The amount of engineers that are in uh, Ukraine, as an example, that are asking for a doubling or a tripling of their salaries. I mean, it's just been been monumental, um, the amount of labor and how it's been moving from those two different worlds. And this is only going to continue over the next couple of years.
1: Hmm. Interesting to see what the future holds with hmm. that. And uh, definitely with the taxation part, because that's that's something that has been on my table lately. Because, uh, well, uh, I would like to go to Thailand or I don't know, to Canada or, or to Bali or somewhere, but it's just a little bit problematic. So Let's see how how the world is going to fix it or how, how companies will fix it.
0: Yeah, right now, if, if anyone's listening, the best solution is employer record companies, uh, Remote.com, Let's Deal, Globalization Partners. Uh, these are all examples of really good companies that you can engage right now. And what they'll do is they take on the legal liability for you as an employer. So they'll say, you wanna work out of Canada, great. If you're gonna work for longer than six months out of Canada, because I I know the Canadian case, you have to be uh, a resident of the country for longer than six months before Canada would really say, you actually have to start paying taxes here. Uh, Then they would simply switch over your employment to Canada. So you would pay your Canadian taxes And then you would have a double taxation issue, which is also another issue that kind of comes into it. Um, But if there are tax treaties between the two countries, usually they figure themselves out after the fact. And uh, it is a much more kind of calmer model than the, hey, you know what? I'm still going to quote unquote work in California (laughs) because eventually that is going to, uh, I, I can see... The governments of the world cracking down on this very, very quickly. Um, If they're not already really planning on doing it, or if they're not already doing it, they're planning on doing it. And I think that it's only a matter of time before we start to see governments say, wow, there's a massive amount of revenue here, particularly for Western employees who go to a developing world, like in Bali, Indonesia, the average income is about $120 per month. It's a very, very poor, poor country. Well, if a $400,000 computer engineer moves from San Francisco to Bali, man, I would like uh, 30% of that tax revenue. That would be very nice for me uh, as a government. So it's definitely one of those issues that's going to pop up and become, I think, front of center in the next two years.
1: This was the first part of Liam's interview. I must say I learned tons of new things already, and especially his tips about asynchronous communication were valuable. However, I don't fully agree with Liam when it comes to hybrid work. In my opinion, it is possible to run a hybrid organization successfully, but of course it requires a lot of effort and understanding from leaders. Why do I think so? Well. Because I've personally experienced how some people really miss their colleagues when working 100% remotely. And that is why we at Sofagus have decided to let our people to choose where they work. If they want to work 100% remotely, that's fine, and some of our people really do that. But they can also come to the office and enjoy the company of others, if they want. So this way I think our people can have the best of both worlds rather than the worst. On the next episode, me and Liam will continue the conversation by diving deeper into remote work. If you liked this episode, you'll definitely enjoy the next one too.